I believe we're, we're starting to approach to get near to begin to bring it to a close. <laughs> you got all that? Which means I have no idea where we are. <laughs> where did I tell you to open? I didn't. Open with me to Romans chapter 4. We've been talking over the last few weeks, and we'll pray in just a second when we get, I get to Romans chapter 4. We've been talking over the last number of weeks about faith, but over the last several weeks specifically about one of the aspects of faith, which is really the evidence, the proof, one of the signs that you're in faith, and that is that faith rests. We've talked about, and I just shared with you over several weeks that insight God had given me, at least I'd never seen it before, because it says that it's His rest we're entering into. And it describes His rest. He's not resting because He's tired. He's not resting because He was worn out from creation. He was resting because His work was done. And the Bible tells us that we are to enter into His rest, which means we are to enter into His work that's already been completed. Well, if He's already completed it, we don't have anything more to do other than enter into it. And so we've studied that, and now we're going to go in a little different direction with that tonight. And last week was just strange. I walked out of here last night saying to my wife, I have no idea what I just preached because it was one of those Holy Spirit nights where He just kind of goes around and touches on things. And I've just learned to let Him go. He knows what He's doing far more than I do. Praise God. But I have something distinct I want to teach. I'm actually going to do something I've never done in this church before. Don't get, I'm going to use something I've never used before. And you'll see in a minute if I don't forget it. Praise God. But let's pray. Father, we thank You tonight. And Lord, we do rejoice in Your presence because we remember where we were before You found us. And Father, we all have different stories. We may have been in different garbage heaps. But spiritually, we were on a garbage heap. And we could do nothing about it ourselves. Your Word says we were dead in our sins and transgressions. That we were without God and without hope in this world. But Your Word goes on to say, but God. And because of in order to satisfy the deep and intense love with which He loved us, He made us alive together with Christ Jesus and seated, raised us up And you seated us with Him in heavenly places. This evening, those of us that are in Christ are literally your sons and your daughters. You didn't just save us so we don't have to go to hell. You qualified us and then you've made us to be your sons and your daughters. And so we could spend this whole night just rejoicing over that one fact. We come tonight to your Word. Your Word is so vital in our lives, Father. It is Your Word that opens the door of our understanding to to see and to hear and receive what You've done for us. And Father, tonight as we turn to this subject that is so vital to You and so vital to us, we ask You to open the eyes of our understanding that we truly might see what is the hope of Your calling for us that's in Christ Jesus. What is the glory of the inheritance that we have together with all the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of the power that You displayed towards us the exceeding greatness of the power that you displayed towards us when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. For that we give you thanks in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These are some of my famous favorite verses. Romans chapter 4. Well, let's start and go down a little bit. Paul, through chapters 1 and chapter 3, basically, actually through the, at least the first half, 
first eight chapters of this letter is laying out the foundation of the revelation that Jesus gave to him that we are saved by faith in what Christ did on that cross and not by our works. And I'm not going to take the time tonight to go through a review of Romans 1, 2, and 3. But suffice it to say that basically he talks about, establishes the fact that all of us, whether we were Jews or Gentiles before we came to Christ, all of us fell short of what was required. I mean way short, not just a little bit short, way short of what was required. Because what's required is that we live out our entire life in accordance with the glory of God on our own. And of course, none of us could do that. And all that revelation, all that understanding does is make us realize that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot bring ourselves by our own efforts up to the standard that God requires of us, which is perfection. But God doesn't leave us there. He tells us all that so that we will turn to the other method by which God provides salvation and the only one that works for us, and that is we're saved by grace through faith. And so that's what he's going on to describe. Now, in this crucial chapter, he's going to explain to us by giving us an example of how that faith works. And so we're going to look at this as the basis of our study because it gives us the elements of faith. And I want to talk to you about what elements are for a minute. I'm, they're, they're, you know, when I was in high school back a few years ago, I had a science course and they told us how many natural elements there are. I think they've discovered a few since then. And, uh, and there was this element chart, which I didn't really understand. I just memorized what I had to memorize. But an element is the basic component of something. And, and, and I've heard this taught from the time I was first saved, and I've heard people twel- teach there's 12 steps to successful faith, there's 10 steps, to, you know, different numbers of faith, steps of it. And I just finally tuned that all out after a while because it became like a religious obligation, you know. It became like a burden. Have I kept all these steps? And so I threw all that out only to realize later on when I threw it out, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. And so the result was I didn't know, what, I didn't know, what, I, you know what was involved in it and I had to go back and begin to study it again. Structure is very important. In, John chap, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us in our prayer life, for instance, He says, don't use vain, repetitious prayers. That doesn't mean you can't say the same prayer. He didn't say don't pray the same thing. He said don't use vain, repetitious prayers. And then he goes on to give us a model for prayer, which we now have turned into a vain, repetitious prayer called the Lord's Prayer. And really it was a prayer he's teaching his disciples. He didn't say say this prayer. He said pray this way. We don't want to go there tonight. But the point is this. There's nothing wrong with praying the same thing as long as it's not vain, which means empty and repetitious. It has to have meaning to you. My wife has never yet in 43 years, actually more than 43, 43 years of marriage, 44 and a half years of knowing each other, she's never said, I'm sorry of hearing, don't tell me you love me today because I'm tired of hearing that. It's repetitious. She always wants me to tell me more. You know, and she says, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't, touch me enough. You don't put your arms around me enough. And I think I do it a lot, but to her, I don't do it enough. So she doesn't say, well, you touched me yesterday. You know, you put your arms around me yesterday. You know, don't bother today. You know, so the fact that it's repetitious doesn't matter to her. It's if it's vain, if it's empty. That's what we... So as long as it has a meaning... So my point is this. So there can be structure to your prayers. Without a structure to your body, you're just a pile of twitching meat. 
You could not have come in here unless you had a skeleton on which that meat is hung. Basically, that's what you are, right? But literally, there are people out there that teach. There are philosophies and there are religions that essentially teach that man is nothing more than twitching meat. That's what evolution basically reduces you to. You're twitching meat. They use other terms, but you're not a person. You don't have a, you don't have a soul. You're just a thing. You're flesh just like a tortoise is. Anyway, I don't want to go there because, whoa. Okay, all right. So in the same way, so structure is okay as long as it doesn't limit you. For instance, in, as I understand from biology from the years ago that I studied it, there's two basic classifications of, of living beings. There's vertebrate and invertebrate. And one of them, the difference is one of them has their skeleton on the outside, lobsters, crabs. That lobster shell is its skeleton. And without that skeleton, it's not protected. It can't move around. Inside, it's just twitching meat. But it is a lower form of of life, and therefore, its skeleton, its structure, its protection is on the outside. But it gets in the way of its growth. So about the time that the the, the lobster on the inside can get too big for its bridge, I mean, too big for its Skeleton. So it has to shed that skeleton and grow another one underneath. That's a lower form of life. The higher form of life has the skeleton on the inside. And it has to grow also with us. But, but we're freer to move around. We're freer to feel things and experience things because our structure is on the inside and so we're a higher form of life. But we still have to have structure. So with the lower form, that structure inhibits them and limits them. Now let's bring it over to spiritual things. If you have, There's nothing wrong with structure because it gives you something on which to stand, something on which to operate, something on which to let your mind function. But if that structure becomes a limitation to you, a limitation between your, in your relationship with God or your stepping out, then you need to shed it and find a structure for the inside that doesn't inhibit you, but instead it helps you. Now I said all that to come back to this principle of having a checklist or something. If what you have is a checklist for faith or a checklist for prayers, and that becomes a source of bondage to you, if I do all these things, then God, if I check off these ten things, then God will have to answer my prayer. That's the skeleton of a, of a lobster. That's not how God works. But on the other hand, if these points or principles become something that you look at and say, oh yeah, now I have a better understanding of how faith operates, then it's become something of value or helps you. I'll give you another example of that. And I've not been a pilot. I've never been a pilot. And I've, well, I'd like to be. I don't want to take the time or the energy or the money to do it. But, but Link's flown in planes and other people have flown in planes around here. And I've, I've talked to pilots and they all have a checklist. Is that right? They could have flown 10,000 hours in that very plane. They could have been up in it two hours earlier. But when they get back in that plane, they go through the same checklist. But I don't sit there and say to the co-pilot, oh, boy, is this bondage. Oh, my gosh. I mean, don't they know who I am? I'm a colonel. I practically own this plane. I was the only person that's ever flown this plane, and I got to go through this checklist. Who do they think I am? Think I'm dumb or something? Oh, no. 
because they understand that all that checklist is really is a series of reminders to make sure that everything that's needed so that that plane not only takes off but then lands safely has been taken care of. So what I want to teach you tonight is like a checklist. It's something that you can go through to say, and it will give you a better understanding of how faith operates. And we're going to take it from this example by which Paul is using to teach, uh, teach the Romans what their faith is so that they'll understand how to, op- how to use it to apply it towards what Christ has done for them because it's faith in what Christ has done for them. That's how we get saved. So are you with me? All right. I give you enough time to chime chapter 4. All right. Let's just go down through here and start. Um, well, I don't want to go back and go through it. He's talking about Abraham. Abraham, see, the, the Abraham, they saw Abraham as their father because God introduced the rite of circumcision to them through Abraham. Circumcision was introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 when God, as part of his entering into the covenant with Abraham, of which the rest of Israel became the beneficiaries of that covenant. And that circumcision was a sign or a mark to them and to the world that they were in covenant with the living God and that they were descendants of Abraham with whom God had entered into a covenant. But what happened is Israel became proud of the of the covenant and of the fact that they were in covenant with God and they stopped believing in the covenant. They, and it reduced down to this. They became proud of the fact that they were the people that were circumcised and the rest of the people were not. So they became proud of the fact that they carried a mark that God had given them of a covenant and yet they stopped trusting in the God who'd given it to them. And so that's what Paul is addressing here. And he goes back and basically says here that the, the, the circumcision was not given to them when God, when God gave the law on Moses, but it was given to them before the law was given on, on, on Mount Sinai. In fact, the law, the covenant was given after God declared Moses or Abraham righteous. Because the pattern is this. What we'll see here is Abraham, God made a promise, Abraham believed the promise. God counted him as righteous because he believed the promise. Then God later on gave the mark of circumcision. So what he's saying here basically is circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham being made righteous in God's eyes. What made Abraham righteous in God's eyes is God made a promise and Abraham believed it. That's it. Because they were basing their confidence in their standing before God on the circumcision. And God says, basically, that came after Abraham had already been considered righteous in God's eyes because the righteousness came because he believed God. That's the context of the discussion here. We're going to use this to kind of take apart the elements of faith, and then I'm going to show you some examples if we have time tonight. All right, so let's go... um, Verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed or offspring through the law. Because the law was given several hundred years later to Moses. So the promise that he would be heir of the world was not given to Abraham or to his seed, his descendants, through the law, but through the righteousness that came by faith. For if those who are of the law 
our heirs, faith was made void and the promise was made of no effect. Now the law, just for those of you who may not understand, were basically the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and then He gave other instructions and other forms of worship and things like that, a series of instructions which then the, the, the religious people exploded into over 600 law rules that they had to remember. Even down to you know, what they had to do with the, the herbs that came out of their garden. The ritual with how they were to wash, that's where Jesus talks about them. They were upset because he didn't wash, his disciples didn't wash his hands before they ate the the grains out out of the wheat field. And they weren't upset because it was a matter of hygiene. They were upset because they were breaking one of the laws that had been handed down. And Jesus says, you know, you wash the outside of the cup ritually, not to keep it clean because it's part of the ritual. And yet inside, you're like a white, whitewashed sepulcher. He wasn't polite to the religious people. He offended them. The only people he ever got upset at were the religious people and his own disciples because they didn't believe enough. Anyway, so that's the context here. So the law he's talking about is the law that was given to Moses and the purpose of the law, as I mentioned earlier, was to show them if they perfectly kept the law, then they would be considered as righteous as God was because basically the law is what God would be like if he walked on the earth and it is what God was like when he did walk on the earth. But the problem is you had to do it perfectly every day, 24 hours a day, for every moment of your life, even when you were a little child. You ever blew it once, you blew the whole thing. Well, of course, none of us could do that. So the purpose of the law, Paul is explaining earlier, was not to make anybody righteous. It was to show you how good a job you can do on your own so that you'd stop trying to do it on your own and you'd receive it as a gift that he had to give you. See, there's something in human nature that wants to contribute a little bit so we can get a little, at least a little bit of credit. After all, God, give me a little credit. I tried hard. Trying hard doesn't count. You try hard to jump from here tonight to the full moon up there, all your effort doesn't count unless you make it. All your effort to jump up and be as righteous as God doesn't count unless you get to be perfect like He is. Well, you're not going to make it. And if you made it one day, you'd be proud about it the next. Right? All right. I want to get into this. For if those of the law, verse 14, are heirs, then faith was made void and the promise was no effect. In other words, if the law made anybody righteous, then we don't need faith. All that he did with Abraham was worthless. Because the law brings about wrath. Why does it bring about wrath? Because nobody can live up to it. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Verse 16 is what I want to begin into. Therefore, if it is by faith, in other words, if we're made righteous by faith instead of by keeping the law, that it might be in accordance with grace so that the promise may be sure or certain to all the seed. What he's saying there is God chose this method of faith by which we're to receive this gift of righteousness. The very beginning of our discussion, I talked about the relationship between grace and faith. Grace is the disposition or attitude of God's heart by which He gives us something we don't deserve. But it takes faith to receive that free gift because faith 
is what allows us to receive something we can't see with our natural senses. And since you cannot see God reaching out and putting His hands out towards you and saying, I know you've sinned and fallen short, but I want to forgive you if you'll just put your trust in my Son. We can't see God doing that. We can't even see God, Jesus on the cross. So we have to accept that that's a free gift by faith. Remember in the beginning I talked about faith is like the straw. I talked about the milkshake or fribble or awful, awful, the milkshake that allows you. That, that's what, what I want. But the way I get it into my... It doesn't do any good unless I get it into my mouth. The vehicle that takes it from that cup into my mouth is a straw. It's the means that gets it from where it is now to where it does me good. So faith is what it... By, is the method by which I receive a gift that's been given to me that I cannot see with my eyes or touch with my hands because that's why we've seen faith is the substance or gives substance to things hoped for is the evidence of things you cannot see. I cannot see God's gift of righteousness so I have to receive it by faith. Are you with me? Okay, all right. It's important to understand that. Because these elements all will fit into that. All right. Therefore, it is a faith that it may be in accordance with grace, so the, and God's purpose is so that the promise may be sure, sure or certain to all the seed. In other words, He's come up with a way so we can all get it. Not just the strongest, not just the holiest, not just the most faithful. He's provided a way by which all of us can qualify, because the only thing it takes to qualify is believe it. That's all it takes, is to believe it. Because He's given it as a free gift. That's what grace means, essentially. All right. Not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. And this is what I want you to begin to see. As it is written, a father of many nations... You'll forgive me, because I have said this so many times from the Newark American Standard, which I used for 30 years, that I'm going to shift back into it. I know I am, so I'm not even going to look at it. It's just ingrained in me. As it is written, I want you to look at your Bible, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into things into being that have never, do not exist. In hope against hope, he believed. Abraham, notice he, in hope against all hope, He believed in order that He might become. Notice the order there. He believed so that He could become. We'll talk about that in a minute. According to that which was written, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, now the New American Standard says, He contemplated His own body. The the English Standard Version said He contemplated His own body. The King James says He contemplated not His own body. The New King James says He contemplated not His own... Which one's right? They're both right. I don't have the time to go back and tell you, but there's two basic manuscripts that all the other manuscripts can offer. One of them says he contemplated not, and one of them says he contemplated. But if you look at what he's saying, they basically say the same thing. In fact, one Hebrew version says he stared his body in the face. In other words, what, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Whether he looked at his body or didn't look at his body, what it's saying is he wasn't moved by what his body told him. So whether you open your eyes or close your eyes, it doesn't matter as long as you're not moved by what's on the other side of your eyeball, eyelids. 
Okay. He contemplates his own body, which is good as dead, even the deadness, nor the deadness of Sarah's room, being about a hundred years old. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he wavered not in unbelief, being fully persuaded that what God promised, he was also able to perform, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded. All right. Here's what I want to do. I want to go through this series of scriptures because in there are all the elements, the basic elements of faith. I'm going to do something I've never done in here before. I did in school of ministry. I'm going to use a PowerPoint demonstration. Now, don't get too, it's not too sophisticated. But I want to show you these points without you having to write them all down. So they'll be up on the screen. So I'll run or read it, then I'm going to have you... You can put the first... Yeah, that's it. Elements of faith. All right, and I'll go through this with you. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. The first thing, you can put that up. The first thing is, it starts with identifying... Well, that's not very large, is it? It says, locate the promise God has made. Faith, because what faith is, is faith is believing something God said when you can't see any evidence of it. So it has to start with knowing what God said. That's very important. That's critical. That means for whatever you're trusting God for, I ought to be able to ask you, and you can take me to at least one scripture that shows you God made this promise to me. Because without having that promise, you won't have the confidence to stand. It's said sometimes in another way. It says, faith begins at the knowledge of God's will. Well, how do I know what God's will is? I've got a promise from Him. I've got a promise from Him. It has to start with knowing what that promise is. And the, the more specific you can get and the clearer you can get, the stronger your faith will have because this is the foundation. The foundation of your faith has to start with God's promise. And that's what he's talking about here. In Genesis 17, God said to Abram, Behold, As for me, from my side, God says, I have made you a father of many nations. And this was at a time when Abraham was 75 years old, his wife was 65. No, actually, I think he was 85 at this point. And his wife was 75. So they were both past childbearing age, and she was barren to boot. She couldn't have borne a child if she was 25 because she hadn't. And God speaks to Abraham and unqualifiedly says, as far as I'm concerned, from my side, of course, that's the side that counts, isn't it? I have made you. Not I'm going to at some future date. This goes back to what we talked about last week. I have made... As far as I'm concerned, it's done, God says. So rest in it. As for me, I have made you a father of many nations. This is so important that you can go and find a promise and find more than one because the Bible has this principle that, that out, of the wit- out of the mouth of two witnesses a thing is established. So I'll often go back to God and say, I need another one. Show me another one. 
And many times there are multiple ones. And I'll write them down. And I'll go over them and over them and over them in my mind. I've told you on Sunday morning that it's not just reading the Word, it's eating that Word. It's meditating on that Word. It's speaking that Word. Well, what word do I meditate? What Word do I meditate? I take the promise. It's the foundation of my faith. And then I go over scriptures that talk about how well I can trust God's promise, like Numbers 23, 19. God's not a man. So I'll take it. Sometimes I've written it down. I'll write it down. If it gets real tough, I'll take a scripture and I'll write it down and God and I'll have this conversation. I'll go into court and i say, you said this. This is your promise. This wasn't my idea. See, I'm not trying to talk you into something and I don't know what you're going to do. You made this promise to me. And your word says about you, not my word, not my opinion, your word says about you, you're not a man that you should lie. Nor are you a son of a man that you should change your mind. Have you not said it? And shall you not bring it to pass? That turns God on. That's not arrogant. That's faith. Malachi 3, he says, Come, prove me. Test me. I can handle the challenge. See if I won't do what I promised you to do. In Isaiah, around chapter 1 or 2, he says, Come and argue with me. God loves arguments so that you can win. He's the only person I've ever known that tells me, come argue with me so I can win. My wife's never said that to me. (laughs) But I've never said that to her either. We don't argue like that anyway. Anyway, I better not go there. The point is this. You've got to find what the promise is. Because the promise has behind it the power of God to carry it out. If you try to believe there's something and you don't have His promise and He hasn't promised it, what you're in is called presumption. You're presuming upon it. You don't know His will about that. So you're presuming upon it. And so there's going to be a sense of uncertainty, a shakiness. Well, really down inside, I don't know if God wants this for me or not. So well, what if I don't know if it's God's will? Then why do you want it? Well, I don't know if this is good for me. Then why do you want it? Well, maybe, you know, God, if it be thy will. No, he wants you to ask him. Well, how do I know if it's God? Well, go study the word. Find out what he says. Get to know him. When you get to know him, you'll have a better idea of what his will is like. So it's incumbent on you and me to get into this book and find out what his promises are. And the wonderful thing about the day and age you and I live in is we've got books that will help us that have pulled the promises out. We've got Bible software that'll do incredible searches for things like that and pull up lists of scriptures. Write them down. I carry some around in my Bible that I've written out years ago. Just some of the promises of God that I'll go back and go back over again and go back over again and go back over again. When I wake up at night, I'll go over some of these in my mind, establishing and grounding myself in the promise of God. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. So it starts with knowing what that promise of God is. The second thing is, he goes on and says, and you can put that up now. The second thing he says, in the presence of Him whom He believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they do. This slide says, know the one who made the promise. See, the first thing is to know what the promise is. But the promise is only as good as the promiser. 
I've had people out there make all kinds of promises to me. And I just smile at them. Bless your heart. But I'm not about to go out and act on it. But the one... See, the next thing that Abram understood, he knew the promise God made. The next thing he understood was that he knew the one who made the promise. And it tells us here what he knew about him, what God was able to do. The God who made the promise to him can raise the dead. Now let's think about that a second. Can you do that? Can I do that? I don't know any man that can do it. I know some doctors. We have doctors in the congregation. They can't raise the dead. They do their very best to keep them from becoming dead. But once they're dead, medical science says, by and large, it's over. Now they may do some things to try to revive temporarily. But we have one case where Jesus raised somebody four days in the grave. I don't care how many electronic shocks you give them, they're dead. It's over. It's too late. But we're not talking about a God that lives by our rules. We're not talking a God that has the limitations that we have. We're talking about a God who made us, who made everything. He made your body. He made my body. He made that heart. He made those kidneys. He made that pancreas. He made those. He made those with words uttered thousands of years ago. He made those. Can He not remake them? Which is harder, to make something out of nothing or to take something that's been made and is broken and now fix it? But just in case we're not impressed with the fact that He can raise the dead, Paul goes on to remind us that Abraham believed something else about God. Not only can he raise the dead, he can call things into existence that have never existed before. He can just say, let it be. I mean, go back every once in a while and read Genesis 1 and 2 and just think about God standing on the edge of time and just speaking gently those words. I don't imagine He yelled them. When you are all power, you don't have to yell. I don't see evidence that Jesus screamed or yelled or threw a hissy fit or just, you know, asserted His... Jesus didn't assert His authority. Why? He knew it. In fact, most of the time when He refers to Himself, He doesn't refer to Himself as the Son of God. He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. He had more trouble convincing people He was a man than that He was God. So this God who's made this promise to you Look what He can do. He can raise the dead. So that means there's nothing too late for Him. Just ask Jairus. We've talked about that story before. Dead sounded like too late for Jairus, but it wasn't too late for Jesus. As long as Jairus believed and did not let fear in. See, God's only limitation is what you'll believe. God's only limitation in your life is what His promise is and then what you'll believe of His promise. In both Matthew's account and Mark's account, Jesus went to His hometown. In Matthew's account, it said He did no mighty works. Mark's account tells us why. It said He could do no mighty works among His own brethren except He healed a few minor things. And actually, the implication in the Greek is they were a few minor things. He couldn't do them. He wanted to but he couldn't do them 
Because why? Because of the familiarity, they looked at him and said, well, that's Joseph's son. That's Joseph's son. So they limited what the God of all creation could do in their midst. And Paul is saying, Abraham understood about the God who created him, that first of all, he can raise the dead. There's no such thing as too late for him or too hard. But even beyond that, he can call with his words, call something into existence. Now that becomes important to us later on because this tells us why when he considered his own body or didn't consider his own body, whichever it was, that that he wasn't moved by it. I was reading through there one time and it dawned on me, what in the world did his age and the barrenness of Sarah's womb, how in the world could his age and the barrenness of Sarah's womb, those circumstances, how could those things limit or stop the promise of God from coming about when the one who made the promise speaks and things come into existence. What do they have to do with each other? But see, we measure what God can do by our own experiences. And we measure in our mind what God's capable of by the experiences that we have with Him and we've heard other people have with Him and that we have with each other. That's like the people of Nazareth where He could do no mighty works because their image of Him didn't match what He wanted to do. Your image of Him is so important. That's part of the process of renewing your mind. So Abraham learned and had confidence that the one who made the promise was also well able to perform it. Why? Because there's nothing hard to God. I was at a service years ago, and I was sharing with some of the pastors on staff this week, where I saw some amazing miracles take place. And I won't go into have to take the time tonight to go into the powerful manifestations of the Spirit. There was a gentleman there, and people were coming up for all kinds of physical maladies. And, and one of them was a young man, I think he was 18 years of age, and he had his foot was broken and went, we knew the guy. He was a friend of our family. And, and this minister just had him put his foot up like that and he just, he didn't say, you know, oh Lord, pre-. he just said, Jesus, take his foot and let go like that and walked away and his foot didn't go down. Well, he's 18 years old. He can hold it up there. But two hours later, it's still up there. I don't care whether you're 18, 16, 15, a football player or what. You, stand, you sit there and hold your leg up for two hours. The other thing is it was grin. He was laughing because he realized he wasn't, hold- he, he wasn't holding it up. And at the end of two hours, the Holy Spirit released it and his foot came down and it was completely healed and well. He could stand up and walk on it. Now, I was, we were watching these things happen. And then someone came forth and they said, I have cancer. And this minister said, stop a second. Because he said, I can feel what's happened. He said, we've been enjoying watching the Spirit of God, you know, heal a broken foot and, and, and fix a back and strengthen a leg out. And now suddenly we've got somebody coming up with a really serious need. Now the cancer's in another realm of difficulty of prayer. That's what he's saying. And it is to our mind. He's saying, but we're talking to God. Now, this is important to think this through. That's why we'll take our time on this. Because our minds work this way. And when we do, we limit what God does and wonder, well, I believed Him, but did we really? Why is cancer 
any harder for God to heal than a headache. Why? If he can raise the dead, now that would be harder, you'd think, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be harder to raise somebody from the dead after they died of cancer than healing them before? I mean, Jesus used those kinds of things. Remember the four gentlemen that brought their friend and dropped him down? And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the, disciple, the, the, the Pharisees couldn't see his authority to forgive. So they're questioning his authority. So well, I just want you to know, to show you that I've got authority on earth to forgive sins, take your bed, rise up and walk. And the man was instantly healed. Remember Jesus saying, if, if you think it's harder to, I've got any less authority to forgive, then do this. I'm going to show you the authority I have. It's the same authority. So, so is it... A, is cancer harder for God to heal? Is it? If you read through, carefully read through some of Matthew's accounts, I think it's chapter 15, around 34, 35, talks that they brought to him the lame and the maimed, the blind and the deaf and some others. That she, and I went and studied that word maimed. Lame means you've got a limb that's not working. Maimed means it's a limb that's missing. And it said Jesus prayed for them and they were all healed and made whole and they rejoiced because they saw the lame walking and they saw the maimed healed. They saw limbs grow out. I know of ministries where limbs have grown out by prayer. See, it's not us that do it. It's not like that was some super pastor or some super missionary because it was a missionary. It was not that. It was that they were open to believe a super God. See, it's Him that we've got to get our eyes on. It's Him that we have to get our eyes on. So is, is cancer any more difficult than a hangnail to God? When the beautiful moon that's up there tonight and the stars that are out there tonight. You know when they were created? Thousands of years ago. Simply by His words. And Hebrews tells us they're still held in position by the power of those words uttered thousands of years ago. Remember Lafayette Scales here a number of years ago a statement he made that's always stuck with me because it convicted me. He said, the only thing in all of creation that does not instantly obey God is man. Everything else God created instantly obeys Him. Why? Because it was created by His authority of His Word. It's still under His authority. The only thing He ever created that's not still under His authority is man. The only thing He ever created that had its own will to decide whether it would obey Him or not is man. That means that that organ in your body that's not functioning right is subject to His Word. That's why the disciples were so amazed when Jesus, he didn't jump up and down and tell that fig tree to wither up and die at its roots. He just walked by it and said, nobody eat fruit of you anymore and just walked on. 
He didn't have a big service to cast demons out and cursing fig tree services. He just spoke a word to it and kept right on going. And when he came back the next day and it was shriveled up over, he didn't stop and say, wow, look at that. He expected that to have happened. He wasn't surprised that it happened. He, when Peter's the one that stops and says, whoa, Lord, look. And Jesus then stopped to use that as an opportunity to teach them what? What they could do. We went back and looked at that in Mark 11, 22 and 23 and 24. Of course, it's interesting. It starts out with 22 saying, Have faith in God. And so Jesus was saying to them, that story is not told to them so that they could be so impressed with His authority. He already did. Jesus didn't need them to be impressed. That story is in there because He's teaching them how to do what He did. But why is that story in our Bible then? Is it just so we have a nice historical account of what Jesus taught His disciples to do? No. Because Jesus is teaching us that the same things that He did, they were to do, and the same things they were to do, we can do when we connect to His authority. So you understand this. When you connect to His authority, when you believe His authority, His authority flows from heaven, actually flows from out of you, through you to deal with that situation. So when you pray for somebody, you need to get this picture. It's not you praying. It's not you praying. It's Jesus praying through you. I want to close with this example. Um, Lisa, come up here a second. You just stand, turn around and face the congregation. Honey, would you come here a minute? No, no, Brendan. Stop writing and come up here. All right, turn around. All right, now this is what we'll usually do. If we have a woman in a prayer line and she has something in, in her body that's not working right, we'll ask either another woman or her husband, would you put your hand there because I'm going to pray for Lisa, all right? And I put my hand on his hand and I pray for her, all right? She's going to walk away. You're going to say, Brendan, pray for me or Pastor John, pray for me? Pastor John. Okay, all right, all right, right. But I never touched her. Brendan laid his hands on her. So any power that would have gone out of me would have gone through Brendan into her body. Thank you. You may sit down. When you lay hands on somebody, the Spirit of God in you will flow out of you into them. And it's the same Spirit that lived in Jesus. Because how many Holy Spirits are there? Right? How many? I thought there's a version, Jesus, God, and then there's our version. No, there's only one Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11 says, If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will quicken or make alive your mortal body. The same Spirit that lived in Jesus, the same Spirit was the source of the power when He spoke to the blind. There was a man that was a withered hand. And the religious people were all upset at him. Jesus didn't even touch the man. He just looked at him and said, Stretch forth your hand. And when the man stretched forth his hand, not when Jesus said it, when Jesus said it, the power went out there. When the man acted on what Jesus said, that power connected with him 
and his hand was made whole. The power that made his hand whole came out of Jesus. When you take his words, we'll talk about that next week, you take his words and you take his promise and you believe that promise and you speak that promise, the authority of God that's behind that promise flows out of your words into that situation. It's not your power. It's not your authority. And we look, well, you know, I didn't have a good day today. I don't feel prayed up. Jesus didn't say anything about being prayed up. He says, pray. Our confidence is never to be in ourselves. The devil will always tell you, you're not enough. You're not. It was God's mistake to choose us. But he made it. Who am I to argue with him? But the enemy wants us to like have our eyes on ourselves. Well, and this is too hard. Nothing's hard for him. It's not that nothing's too hard. Nothing's hard for him. You ought to read the Gospels with that view in mind. Watch how Jesus looked at and responded to the environment around him. It did not limit him. It did not stop him, whether it was a storm or no food or what. Nothing stopped him because he walked with absolute confidence in his God as his Father was going to provide everything he needed. And therefore, he wasn't moved by what he saw. He went out on that water, whether it was stormy or calm, because the storm or calm has nothing to do with when you can walk on water. There's a good example right there. Peter quit because he started measuring the wind and the waves. They've got nothing to do with whether you can walk on water. Just as the barrenness of Sarah's womb and their age has nothing to do with whether God can carry out His promise, because the God that made the promise can raise the dead. And even beyond that, can just speak and call things into existence. So what happened is when God said, As for me... I have made you the father of many nations. His word went forth just as it did when he said, let there be light. But because it affected a man and a woman, they had to receive that promise as if it were already done. And it took them about 25 years to do that. But when they came to the place, 24 years, when they came to the place where they finally believed the promise, nine months later, there he is, Isaac, right on time. Praise God. Well, we've got to close.